Let's pray. Lord Jesus, may your Holy Spirit meet with us as we gather in this time around your word. Although we are scattered, your spirit can be with each one of us. And we ask that you will be. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A few weeks ago, I mentioned a book called The Boy, the Mole, the Fox and the Horse by Charlie Mackesick. And in the last couple of weeks, I've seen another couple of pictures drawn by him based on the book, but which have been inspired by the coronavirus crisis. The first one was this one, and it has a caption on it to the NHS staff, the nurses and doctors, the teachers and exhausted supermarket shelf stackers. Thank you. And maybe some of you were out on Thursday night applauding those who work for our NHS. And then on Tuesday, I had this one, which says, everyone is a bit scared, but we are less scared together. And I WhatsApp that picture to a friend who is also a fan of Magassi's work. And they responded, well, we are sort of together, but we aren't. And I love the thought. And I sent a reply back. I said, yes, it pains me that I can't actually be with people. I said, I joked, you know, I'm a middle-aged bloke. I thought socially distancing was what we specialised in. And they responded, actually, I'm not sure any of us are great at social distancing on this scale, despite what we think. New words, horrible words, have crept into our everyday vocabulary these last few weeks. Self-isolation, social distancing. We're being encouraged to stay away from others. And yet, we still crave connection. The new HBC WhatsApp feed certainly bears testimony to that. Some of us have spoken to one another more this week than we have in ages. And that sense of isolation, of being cut off from those we love, may be the hardest part of the current situation for so many. Just this week, I was chatting with my brother and he was telling me how painful it is that he's not able to see and be with his grandkids, for example. And isolation's perhaps the biggest fear of so many in this crisis. And this is a country that already had a loneliness epidemic. And I've seen a number of warnings to stay at home, not to take risks. And they have played on this idea that if you get it and you get it badly, or if your children get it badly because you were socialising, you or they will be taken to the hospital and they will be alone. You won't be able to be with them. So perhaps as we continue our time reflecting on the words Jesus speaks from the cross, today resonates more strongly with our current situation. For six hours, Jesus has hung on a cross, enduring excruciating physical pain and the derision of those around him. Three of those six hours have been spent in complete, inexplicable darkness in the middle of the day. 
And then as Matthew and Mark describe it, into that darkness, Jesus utters a single cry. And it clearly left a distinct impression on whoever heard it. It's as if it was just so sacred that translating the words into Greek would somehow diminish them. And so the writer of the gospel left them in the Aramaic in which Jesus originally spoke. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Of the seven phrases Jesus speaks from the cross, this is probably the most talked about. And in part, it's because of their power to shock. They're hardly words that we expect from the Son of God. It's a cry of isolation, of distance, of feeling cut off. Others point out that these words were the opening line of a psalm, Psalm 22. And in fairness, there are quite a few echoes of that psalm in the gospel crucifixion scenes. And often when people suggest that Psalm 22 was what Jesus had in mind, they highlight that it's a psalm which begins in despair, but speaks of vindication at the end of the suffering. But I wonder if perhaps we rush to the conclusion of the psalm too quickly. And I wonder if the reason we do so is that we can hear these words of Jesus and it can pose a very uncomfortable question. Are we frightened that one who had spent his life in such close relationship to God could feel this way? I mean, people like me will stand in front of churches week by week and we'll talk about the importance of maintaining a personal relationship with God. And we'll, we'll tell you how that can anchor our lives so that we know that whatever we face, we can know that God's got it all under control. And I stand by that. I've seen it at work often enough in people's lives. But even, if even Jesus can feel this way, what hope is there for the rest of us? And yet, as one of the books I've read in preparation for this series suggests, this cry is loud and it is real. The three hours of darkness since noon have been three full hours of waiting, listening, with the volume knob of the receiver turned all the way up. And there's nothing but silence. Those words of Psalm 22 may have crossed Jesus' mind in those hours. But we mustn't let it diminish the sense of abandonment, isolation that Jesus felt. But I think there's another reason why these words perhaps strike us more forcefully than any of the other words Jesus speaks from the cross. It's because they're the words with which we most identify. Because we know the pain of isolation, of distance, that sense of abandonment. It's one of our greatest fears. 
Because let's be honest, faith at times can be really confusing. There are times when we pray for ourselves or for someone else to be delivered from a situation. Just as Jesus himself prayed for deliverance in Gethsemane. And it feels like those prayers simply hit the sky and the skies are dark and silent. And we can find ourselves saying, God, where were you when I needed you? How God could you allow this to happen? And that experience can come to those who have stuck closely to God, as much as to those who have drifted along with only the vaguest of faiths. In fact, I would argue it takes deep faith to pray such words honestly to God. Because it's, it's those who have been most aware of God's presence who will most notice the silence and the absence. It's like when somebody dies, one of the things that they often find hardest to understand is how everyone else seems to just carry on as if nothing has happened while their life has been turned upside down by this absence. But for us, those God, where were you? Or God, how can you allow this to happen? Or God, why didn't you stop this? are rooted in other deeper questions about the kind of God we have. Questions of how, if God's so all-loving and so all-powerful, how can he allow suffering? I mean, surely if he's all-powerful, he could stop it. But he doesn't, so he mustn't be all-loving. Or maybe he's all-loving and he would like to stop it, but it doesn't happen, so it must mean he can't. So therefore he's not all powerful. And those kind of questions run right through the crucifixion scene. It's if you really are who you say you are Jesus. If God really is with you. Let's see him come and rescue you. If you're really who you claim. Surely God will stop it. And he won't let this happen to you. When Jesus cries out. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Some think he's calling for Elijah and for God to do something spectacular and step in and save him. And they offer him some sour wine to keep him going and say, well, let's wait and see if it happens. I mean, Jesus, if you're right here, if God's got to ever do something, he's got to do it now. And when we ask those questions about why bad things happen to good people or why bad things happen to us, at root we're asking, why doesn't God use his power the way we would if we were him? Because we hold to these pictures of God as loving, compassionate, considering, caring, a bit like us in fact, only more so. But God's got the added advantage of being all powerful. And we might think that being God means having power to fix things, power to do what he wants, power to make the world right with a click of his fingers. A God who could set everything right if he would just work as Godly magic. But as we turn to the cross, one of the things we find is that those notions of God don't work. 
This isn't a hypothetical, philosophical question of bad stuff happening to someone good. This is the best person. Indeed, the only perfect person to have ever lived. He's unjustly hanging on a cross in public, humiliated in mortal agony. And God doesn't step in and spare him the cross or rescue him from the pain. In the interest of balance, let's be wary of limiting God and almost making it seem like he never intervenes in what we would call miraculous ways. There are times when God does step in. But even then, we can look at our situation and say, well, if he did it there, why not here? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But at the cross, the idea that God must possess the sovereign power to make everything turn out okay for us is challenged. All such traces of that kind of power give way to pure silence. It seems that God has a much more complex idea of what power means than we do. The God that we have refuses to work the way we would want him to, the way we would if we were him. He refuses to use our kind of weapons to right the wrongs of this world or to sort the bad that we face or that happens to us. In the darkness, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the lights aren't immediately switched on. Relief doesn't come. And just as for us, those answers might not come this side of heaven. And for Jesus, it will take resurrection to make sense of any of this. And yet, in this same cry, it is possible to find hope. When we cry out to God and are met with silence, these words spoken by Jesus from the cross tell us that in Christ, God knows that experience. That we have a God who understands not just what it means to suffer, but knows that sense of isolation, has felt that abandonment, has been cut off from all that is important to him. In Jesus, we have a God who has suffered for us and a God who has suffered with us. We have a God who has plumbed the lowest depths of human experience where he feels even bereft of God. And in hearing these words, we see that because of Jesus and what he experienced, there can be no place we find ourselves where we can say, He's never been there. He doesn't know it. And there can be comfort in that. 
But there is more going on here than Jesus feeling he's been abandoned or forsaken by God. I want to say this is not just what Jesus was feeling, but something that was actually happening to him. In Jesus, God had entered our world. He had taken on the whole gamut of human experience. He had had the joy of weddings, the sorrow of funerals. He had the delight in someone discovering hope and frustration that comes when people who should know better just don't get it. He had faced temptations, he had borne our struggles, he had faced the hostility of enemies, the failure of friends, the pain of crucifixion. But Jesus had lived without sin. So there was one experience that Jesus had not encountered. And that was the consequences of sin. For sin cuts us off from God. I don't mean that in the kind of God saying, you've done X, so therefore I'm not even going to look at you until you say sorry kind of way. No, 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 that's not the God we have. Like the parable of the prodigal son. God is the father, always open to the relationship. But whilst we choose to live life in the far country, that relationship doesn't become a reality. And in any relationship, failure to behave appropriately will damage that relationship. If I fail to behave the way a husband should, a son should, a colleague or a pastor should, I damage that relationship. And if I keep doing that, and if I refuse to turn away from that kind of behaviour, eventually the damage I cause could be irreparable. We find ourselves cut off from those we care about. And tragically, there are some people who stubbornly cling to destructive patterns of behaviour and continue to damage their relationship and cut themselves off from others. And so it is with us and God. There is a life we were created to live. And when we turn our backs on it, when we cling to our way of doing things, we are the ones building the barriers, not God. And we can stubbornly resist Entering into that relationship with God because God is love and won't force himself on us. And a God who doesn't take sin seriously isn't a God who's worthy of worship. Only a God who doesn't care would allow his creatures to sin and give no thought to the consequences. And sin does have consequences. In ourselves, in our relationship, in our world. But Paul said that God made the one who knew no sin to be sin for us. And it's all way beyond our understanding. But it's on the cross that Jesus takes on the sins of the world. And he bears its consequences. If he is truly to reach us, he must take on himself the worst of sin and the worst of its consequences. And in that moment on the cross, Jesus reaches into the darkest of all corners of all our rejection of God. All those places where we have shut God out. He descends into those parts of our life that have become truly godless and once he's there he reaches in to us that he might drag us back up and back out from the brink of the isolation that we fear and as one who had never sinned and thus never experienced what it was to have kind of felt cut off from God it's no wonder why he cries out my God my God why have you forsaken me 
But as I draw to a close, before we leave this passage, look at what happens next. Because as Jesus breathes out a loud cry and breathes his last, the curtain in the temple is torn from top to bottom. The curtain of which the Gospels speak is most likely the veil which covered the Holy of Holies in the temple in Jerusalem, the most sacred place where God was said to dwell. It was 60 foot high and was a curtain behind which only once a year a single person, the high priest, could enter on the Day of Atonement. And he entered with a rope tied round him in case he died in the presence of God. And that curtain symbolised the barrier which cuts us off from God. But as Jesus breathes his last, the barrier's ripped down. The way back to God is open once more. And what's more, it's ripped top to bottom, not the other way round. If it had been bottom to top, that could have been symbolised us breaking down the barrier to God. But this is God breaking down the barrier and opening the way back to him. Jesus himself has taken on all the sin of the world. He's borne its full consequences, its utter separation from God. And in doing so, he's opened the way back to God for us. He has experienced that distance, that isolation, so that we would not have to. God is not in the business of social distancing. God wants us to draw close. God doesn't want us to isolate ourselves from him. He wants to welcome us into his love. And so in this word from the cross, we see an answer of the kind of God that we have. It's no wonder we struggle to grasp it, because so often it's not the kind of God we would be if we were God. If anything, it seems quite unattractive, quite counterintuitive. It's hard to get our heads around. He's not the kind of God who'll snap his fingers and make it all go away. In these words spoken from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We discover a God who enters the darkest parts of our experience and meets us there. A God who has reached into the darkest sin-filled parts of us, those bits where we have shut God out. And even there, he reaches out to us because he refuses to have us self-isolated from him, distant, cut off, lost. And even there, he says, come. The curtain's been torn down. The pathway to God is open. Come. Walk through it. And through his death, find life. Grace and peace to you. Amen.